I have no idea where this will lead us, but I have a definite feeling it'll be a place both wonderful and strange. I'm Chris Bivey. And I'm Eddie Webb. And today on Genreless, we continue to travel down the road that is Twin Peaks. Hey, everybody. I asked Eddie, actually, if this week, if all we could do is just play Julie Cruz on loop for about an hour and a half. And he's like, no, they'll copyright and strike us down. I was like, but it's Twin Peaks. They won't care. And then he laughed and said, yes, they'll care even more that way. Right. Well, I mean, so 2017, you're probably right. Probably no one really would have cared. And then someone's like, oh, wait a minute. There's there's gold in them there, Hills. <laughs> uh, so season two, uh, I'm. I'm excited to be here, and I am not all at once. Um, Elaborate, please. Wow. So uh, I remember when I first had a chance to watch this, and I was super excited for season two to start. And I remember watching the first episode of it, and I enjoyed it. But having grown up now and having done a lot more, I'm not even going to say research, uh, noodling <laughs> into the history of Twin Peaks, and knowing a little bit more of the drama behind it, I understand why it happened and why part of it is shaped the way it was. But that middle slog that we skipped all of from just our format of how we do it crushed my spirit for a lot of Twin Peaks. I can see that because um, one of the things that's interesting about doing things the way we do is that uh, uh, sometimes it feels like you skip a whole bunch of stuff and you almost feel like, oh, man, I wish you could get a few more episodes in. Um, and, and this time around, I, we, we skipped like 15 episodes. I didn't feel like I missed a whole lot. <laughs> so I was just like, oh, well, I guess not much happened in 15 episodes. That's not a great sign. Yeah. But I, I guess before we get into the episode, a, a little bit of a backstory for some of this. Uh, this is a time where Lynch originally was off doing more movie stuff. Frost was still sort of there, but they'd gotten the mandate from the, from the, company that they want to know who the killer is people need to know right uh frost was more inclined to agree with them having written like police procedurals and everything else and this is more of a thing that like your audience wants to know who killed this person you can't not tell them this regardless of how long it takes lynch was of the different school that we will never tell them the soap opera will keep them. People will care about Nadine and her drape runners. <laughs> they will care about Ed's love of Norma. And the weird illegal romance that was going on almost between Audrey and Cooper that'll keep people coming back. And you know what? Not entirely wrong. <laughs> but but also, well, we've talked about before, people watched television very differently back then. Yeah. And this is a point where we actually have all those spinoffs that we sort of talked about a little bit last time happened. Like, this is where... Oh, by the way, everyone, I've rediscovered the word liked, and I want to try to put it in as much as possible. As I as I listened to our other episode the other day, it's like, wow, I must really like using the word like a lot. <laughs> so I, so yeah, I just want to... Pro tip, don't listen to your own stuff, then you never find that stuff out. <laughs> <laughs> Once again, showing Eddie is the consummate professional, <laughs> and I am merely a day tripper. Also, I'm just lazy, frankly. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so a lot of the drama that was also behind the scenes is that now the show is so popular, 
the cast started going to the writers wanting to have changes done to their characters. Because you'll notice a, a lot of the characters are changing relatively quickly throughout the course of the show. For instance, we'll just touch on Donna. Donna goes mm-hmm. from being very much almost like a Nancy Drew-esque character to becoming more of a seductress-type character how Audrey was. Right. And that's because Audrey was nominated for awards, and she was sort of the fan favorite. And Laura Flynn Boyle, who's the actress that played Donna, wanted that same sort of spotlight. Mm. And she was also the reason that the Audrey and Cooper relationship stopped, because she was actually going out with Kyle MacLachlan at the time and did not want her boyfriend to be on the television show with a hot, steamy romance with someone with someone else. Wow. So like those are the kind of things behind the scenes that were constantly happening, which impacted the entire second season of the show. Coupled and with Lynch stepping away. Am I also right in knowing this is about the time where Kyle McLaughlin was actually debating leaving the show because he's worried about getting typecast? No, that's when uh, Firewalk with me. That's why when okay. we get to Firewalk with me, which we'll be covering, uh, he is not as prominent in it. I will not say how much because we're not there yet. Right, right, right. Okay. Which that in of itself also caused a rift between him and Lynch. Mm. Which if I was Kyle McLaughlin and I would owe most of my career to David Lynch, I would have been like, sure, I'll cover up. What do you need me to do? Right. I'm which- right here to help you out. Uh, and it's interesting, like, watching Twin Peaks season two, and again, it, it's interesting to do this shortly after watching The Prisoner, is a bit of what would have happened if The Prisoner had gotten a second season, right? Uh, uh, because you're right, uh, even just someone like me who's only passively familiar with season two, uh, I definitely got the impression this was becoming a victim of its own success pretty rapidly. Um, like for example, there's definitely some more money being thrown at the show. Uh, and without going into specifics right now, um, it, it, it almost, I think makes the show feel worse because like part of its charm in season one is the fact that it's a little tatty and they kind of have to reuse sets and, and, and make things work on a pretty short budget, which again, made it feel more like a, 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 a soap opera, frankly. Um, and now it's like, you, you see like it's feeling it needs to slide towards drama. And I don't know if it does the show any favors as a result. But you're right. Also, like there's more, even more people are introduced. Um, uh, the, the cast was, you even pointed out the cast was feeling bloated in season one. Now we're in season two. And it's, 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 it's ridiculous. Yeah. There are way too many goddamn characters. And I think you as a fellow creative would also agree that while constraints are bad in some senses, they are incredibly useful as a force additional creativity. Very, so if absolutely. you have a very limited budget, it forces you to make other changes and try new things, which frequently leads to innovation and 70% of the time better outcomes. Let's, let's be realistic with that number. Right. I mean, um, it, granted, there are times where constraints can end in damaging a show. So I mean, like, it's not it's a universal thing. Like if you it's constraints, the show is always better. Um, but when you come from such a strong point, uh, sometimes throwing money at a show will actually cause it to kind of, uh, let's just say change in a way that isn't always to the show's benefit. Um, it's hard to say that this is bad. I, I mean, I wouldn't go that far. It's still Twin Peaks. It's still got a lot of strong stuff going for it. 
but it, it, it I completely agree. Uh, I knew kind of going into this was a step down. Um, so like prior to 2017, uh, like late late nineties when I was just I, I missed Twin Peaks when it aired, right? I kind of just it slipped by me. Um, and then lots of my friends talked about it, and so I tried to get into it. This is when uh, DVD box sets were starting to become in vogue, and so. Uh, <laughs> And all of my friends told me at the time that basically the trajectory of Twin Peaks is season one is fantastic. Season two, you start to see the wheels come off and then Fire Walk with me, it, it craters. Um, there's been a lot of reevaluation of that, particularly since the season three came out. Uh, but that was very much the zeitgeist that I remember kind of coming into. So I was predisposed going into season two, going, okay, I understand this is a weaker season. Um, but it's nowhere near as bad as the audience at the time made it out to be. Uh, but I also see why this show went from one of the hottest shows on TV to canceled in one season. But also for us, so we have the benefit of not having to wait week to week and then having the network, seeing how bad things are, then putting it on hiatus for three months to then shift it to a Saturday night to oh, do all these other things. I forgot all about that. So stuff, if you yeah. were invested in it, regardless of quality, they're losing you because you don't know when it's coming back. It's no longer on like the hot night on Thursday, whenever now it's on the death night of Saturday. Yeah. And you're trying to find the show and then they potentially show it at like midnight instead of like, look at that like again, um, instead of seven. So you have that constant thing of going around. And part of it was Lynch pretty much left after I want to say the next episode, he came back, he, he and Mark Frost wrote, made the giant, uh, be with you. But then Lynch sort of directed this one and the next one and then left. I think Frost was around for a couple of more and left for a shorter stint than what Lynch did, but came back relatively quickly. And the other writing team that was there had a different idea. They wanted to focus more on making it. You'll, you'll even notice there's some Arthurian stuff that starts filtering in as we go throughout the season. Mm -hmm. There's one or two notes of it. But if we were to watch it consecutively through, you will see it has a lot of Arthurian legend mythology in it. And Lynch didn't want that. Mm -hmm. it's one of the I think one of the challenges of surreal media in general is that there's no there's no right way to do it frankly and if you don't have a team that's 100% the exact same page on what your boundaries are for your surreal media you need to have an auteur who can present that creative vision for you and so when you have a like I, I knew there's tension we talked before about the tension between frost and lynch is actually a good thing but from what you're telling me if they're cycling in and out and then at one point leaving a team its own devices then everyone's gonna go well as long as it's weird it's okay and but yeah but you could do very different things with the exact same setup and and you start to see that certainly um uh uh we skip, like you mentioned, we skip a whole bunch of the middle, so I didn't see any of that. But these are three very different episodes, and uh, again, they're not necessarily bad, but um, it, it really makes me miss the tight cohesion of season one. Uh, Wyndham Earl plays a more predominant part in the latter half of season two, which you you can tell just from the final episode. But yeah. I don't want to get there quite yet to talk about the episodes. I also want to touch on the fact that still a little bit more on the tension is that originally from this is more hearsay. I can't speak to it with like hundred percent certainty, but they had actually approached um, Steven Stilberg to come in to direct uh, episode one of season two. Oh, wow. 
And his mandate was, I wanted to be as weird as possible. So he could also show that Lynch was not like the only one that can make odd stuff, but he too could be an odd, make odd, unusual material that people want to engage with. Just not a friendly family fair. Right. But Lynch suddenly decided he had free time and came back and threw out the entire script that had been written. And what we get here is Lynch going back and redoing it like him and Frost. Wow. More Lynch, though, I think, and just ran with it. And that's you can tell because it is the first episode is slow. It is paced and we'll get into that. But those are kind of things that happened. And it happened at the end of the season two. Lynch came back and said, we're not using any of that. But it's it's fascinating you bring it up because that sounds just like the shit we're talking about with Patrick McGowan on The Prisoner, right? Of, of mm-hmm. that creative force coming back in, throwing a bunch of stuff out, rewriting it, directing it themselves the last minute. Um, it, it very much feels like late stage The Prisoner uh, in that front. So, so there's a lot of interesting parallels uh, uh, from a production standpoint on both. Um, but again, because this was something that was put together then found success, then got to do another sect, it starts to fall apart more, whereas Patrick's kind of was built, he was, he was playing the tracks down as the train was going, so never had a chance to really kind of look back and reflect and, and whatnot, so by the time it was done, it was done. Um, so there's, it, it ended up with different outcomes, but it's interesting to see the, the, the parallels of someone with the strong vision what needs to be coming in and idiosyncratically going, okay, this is this is not acceptable, not even maybe able to quite define it in words. But that's one of the reasons I really wanted to do these back to back when we, when the opportunity popped up, I was like, how can we not do this now? No, the, it's, I mean, originally it's like, oh yeah, they're both real TV. That makes sense. But the more we do this, that's one of the reasons why I love doing the show, frankly, is because sometimes putting these shows right next to each other, you find new things that you wouldn't have thought about if, if you had looked at them just in isolation. Do you have any other last comments? If not, I will, I will go ahead and start us into the episode sort of rambling on other random facts. Yeah, let's, that may let's or may just not dive in. From... All right. Season two, episode one. May the giant be with you. As Cooper lies bleeding from his wounds, he has a vision of a waiter and a mysterious giant who gives him several clues, notably that three people have seen Laura's killer, but none have seen his body. In the fires, aftermath, Shelley and Pete recover from smoke inhalation. While Catherine is missing and Josie has gone shopping. <laughs> Leo, having survived his shooting, recovers under a police guard. Albert returns to Twin Peaks to investigate Cooper's shooting, but Cooper returns to work quickly, disregarding all doctor's orders, realizes that Leo could not have been the killer as he was in jail with the previous victim, Teresa Banks. In the hospital, Jacoby recalls smelling scorched engine oil at the same time Jacques was Jacques was killed last night. Leland's hair has turned completely white while Maddie is horrified when a nightmare she had of seeing the carpet covered in blood miraculously comes true. Realizing neither Leo nor Jacques could have been the killer. Cooper and the police theorize that a third man must have been involved. Audrey finds herself help hopelessly out of depth at one eyed Jack's still comatose. Uh, Renette has a horrifying vision of Bob killing Laura as the world turns. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Um, so right out of the gate, we've talked about this before, but right out of the gate, Lynch goes, Hey, so you like slow ponderous scenes? 
Let's give you one of those. <laughs> it is th- so uncomfortable to watch. <laughs> but when I said Lynch was trying to, to tell the, the company that he wasn't going to do what they wanted to do, this is a perfect example. We spend, mm-hmm. what, five minutes on a waiter scene where they say, we want to know the killer now. And right. he's, I'll show you who the killer is. Here's a waiter coming in, telling him this is going to milk, it's going to turn cold if he doesn't drink it, leaves, comes back, leaves again and comes back. Oh, and it's, it's perfect Twin Peaks because like it, it's so funny. It, it's so awkward. It becomes hysterical because as an audience, you want the guy to realize, oh, by the way, the guy I'm talking to is bleeding to death and just... <laughs> He gets ready to say something, and it's not the thing you want him to say. And Cooper is just kind of like, okay. Um, and he's just kind of weirdly baffled by the whole thing. And Cooper also never points out, by the way, could you maybe call? I mean, at one point, he's like, call an ambulance, and then the waiter's just like, okay, and walks off. Um, and it's it's so funny because like it's this horrible scene. And, and, and we as the auditor, well, you just – Fucking get on with it. Um, and, and and Lynch through the guise of the waiter just absolutely refuses to. And it's, I could see why as an audience member, I would have been furious at the time, but also in retrospect, it is amazing. But not only that, it is still true to Cooper's character that he is still a nice person. Right. And He's even when he bus. gives his... His dying, when he thinks he's dying, his things he wish he'd done better in life. One of them is to, to be nicer. So that shows again, the sort of the purity in Boy Scout S that Cooper has. Yep. And, um, one thing I noticed this time around is, uh, there was, uh, we didn't really talk about it much last season, but, um, one of the things that that kind of struck me subconsciously was that the physical acting and the line deliveries were sometimes at odds, which very much struck me as a Lynchian moment of like trying to show that there's more going on with this character by having to say one thing, but their body language and expressions are telling a different story, which again, very Lynchian. Uh, this one is, you see more connectivity between the physical acting and the lines. Uh, so it can come across as a flatter performance, but in some actress cases, you get some weird and nice texture. Like again, in the scene with, with Laughlin, that slow, shaky thumbs up is again, it, it's mapping perfectly with his dialogue delivery and whatnot, but also the way he delivers that shakiness is like, no, I'm dying. <laughs> <laughs> this is not great. Um, but uh, uh, another piece that, I really dug, which plays into the show continually and increasingly grinding the gears of soap opera tropes to kind of almost parody them, but never quite getting there, is the fact that he, A, went to sleep wearing a bulletproof vest, which is hilarious. But then B, it rode up slightly so that he got shot in the stomach. Um, because the the, 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 the the trope would be he got shot, but oh, he was wearing a bulletproof vest, so it didn't really kill him. And it's like, no, he was wearing a bulletproof vest, but it was actually not in the right place, so it was worse. And it's a wood tick, right? It's it's <laughs> it, it, it's amazing because like here's the here's the gag, and then we're gonna actually twist the gag and no, it's actually worth to do. Think 
and it's like oh it's 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 great stuff frankly and while the waiter scene is incredibly painful it is also unbelievably pertinent because that's when we have the giant sort of show up and the giant conveys those clues to cooper and takes cooper's ring and then there's almost a clock that cooper is now on Mm. which motivates him and you may think the waiter himself is irrelevant but then it brings up later as you watch more of the series was the waiter really there or was the waiter part of Cooper's vision? Right. Um, and I think that and the, one of the problems you start to see uh, more in later episodes, but you start to see this episode is also, the, again, the victim of success is that the audience at this point has been trained that everything has a meaning. And so... The, as as a, as a viewer, you're starting to go, okay, does the waiter mean something? Does, does the giant mean something? Does the bullet mean something? Does the phone mean something? And it's like you know, everything feels like it has to have a meaning. Uh, and sometimes it's just whatever happened to be there, which again is, is very Lynchian. It's like if you talk before about how sometimes he'll take uh, the, the odd take or the stumble. Um, sometimes it's there just to, get, to, to give more reality to a scene. Uh, but like you said, like the waiter was – just a, a probably a, just a, a gag, frankly, and then the audience expected to be something. So then later it had to be something. Um, so and, and and so the the weight of accumulated value to everything that's happening is starting to really hit the show in a really strong way. So I'm I'm conflicted by this because part of me believes that Lynch is reinforcing to us that we have to view Twin Peaks differently as we view other television. And a lot of that goes down to even the characters themselves telling us, um, basically, it is what you see that it is. It's not anything else. Right. And that's constantly reinforced. And I remember seeing on the news how there are people that spent weeks and weeks, like, intricately going through every single little nuance, slowed frame of the show to put together their own murder board of clues to figure out what was actually transpiring. And that seems to be overkill and that Lynch is telling us a basic story that has a lot of style to it. And you have to discern which parts of it matter. And it's the parts that he's telling us it matters. He's not hiding anything. Right. And that's what's interesting on some level about Twin Peaks is that because basic storytelling structure is, is you know, the Chekhov's gun, right? Is like if a gun is seen in act one, it has to be fired in act three. Every time something happens on screen or in a book or whatever, it generally is expected to tie into the either the plot or the character arc. Um, so, for example, uh, characters are never sick. So when they are sick on screen, that means that that sickness is going to play a factor into it later. And once you see that, some a lot of mysteries end up becoming really easy to watch because it's like, okay, well... There's a, there was a tension applied to this one thing, so that's probably the murder weapon. Or this character came out of nowhere, so they have to tie in something. Or like it's it's only ten minutes in, and they found the killer, so that's not obviously not the killer. I mean, once you get recognize the tropes and the structure, it becomes easy to follow through. And so with this scene, it feels like Lynch is going. Sometimes it's just a weird dude who doesn't get social cues, uh, but then <laughs> later writers are going, no, 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 that had to have meant something. And then they're going back and applying things. So I, I, I can see when we were Lynch and maybe not necessarily Frost, but maybe the rest of the writing team are going, what does that mean? And Lynch is probably going, I, I don't know. <laughs> 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 uh, 
we we move on to the the hospital scene. Then the hospital scenes in this episode are mostly just used as a joke to sort of make fun of hospital food and right. bring a bit of levity to some of the other serious parts going on around the episode, which is a very nice touch. Mm-hmm. Yeah, great. Which, as always, uh, I love Albert and I hate Albert all at once, and it is. <laughs> A, a perfect blending for that character. And whenever he comes into an episode, I always smile just because it is such a difference between him and Cooper and right. then seeing how he would interact, which is the expected version of an FBI agent for the characters that we've grown. I won't say in finger quotes, uh, love in Twin Peaks. Yeah. Um, one of the things that I think Albert, does is uh twofold like you're right one is is he's the perfect uh foil for cooper uh so we love cooper more because like wow he's better than that albert asshole uh but also it tells us that the weirdness we're seeing is not limited to this one city uh uh, that you know it does extend into the fbi and as we see more fbi agents down the road they become increasingly quirkier and weirder uh are you referring to gordon cooper we're not there yet. When we get to him, I, I have opinions about that character. Uh, but, um, uh, but Albert is interesting because, like, for me, like, the first time I watched it, I was like, yeah, Albert's kind of an abrasive asshole. Watching it again, I kind of see myself a fair bit in Albert uh, because, like, when you see the kind of shit that he puts up with, it's like, yeah, I'd probably be a little snarky about this stuff, too. <laughs> So it's like I, 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 maybe not quite so blunt about it, but the 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 instinct of like, can we just do our job and get out of this insane hellhole? <laughs> it's like that's a fair criticism, honestly. That that's pretty funny because I actually see a lot of myself in Cooper. Mm-hmm. The more uh, is is wacky as it sounds, the more optimistic, wanting to be part of the team and have it all work together. I rarely get a chance to do it, but that's how I see myself and I try to do. So what you're saying is inside of us, there are two wolves. One of them is Albert and one of them is Cooper. Yes. <laughs> and the wolf that frequently wins out and the third wolf that's hidden, more of a cub, is Andy. That's inside of everyone. And that <laughs> one wins true. out more than not. That's true. That's true. So we also quickly get to get rid of a few other possible killers. We know that Leo's not the killer because he was in jail, which links up to one of the clues that Cooper received from the giant. So it's showing again that Cooper's visions, to the best of our knowledge, are right. accurate. Mm-hmm. Yep. And it reinforces that these people that are having these dreams and visions are obviously touched by something, but you're not sure what it is still. And that is a nice layered mystery on top of it because we have Sarah who keeps having visions. Maddie has a vision this time around. Mm -hmm. Cooper is more brought into visions and doesn't have them. So that is also a touch that shows if you're not from Twin Peaks or related to someone from Twin Peaks, that you won't, you don't have these visions. Right. Uh, But also uh, this is where for me, Twin Peaks goes from, being deliberately paced to being strangely paced, right? Like uh, season one, we talked about four is is a slow burn is, is the modern terminology. Uh, and and that's fine. I mean, once you recognize going in, that's what it's supposed to be doing. And, and here's what's going on. Great. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, but last episode, we counted six cliffhangers at the end of the episode. 
and nearly all of them get resolved in one episode. Uh, so we have, again, this very long scene we talked about at great length at the beginning, and then a whole bunch of plot lines get wrapped up real fast. And it's like, okay, um, Leo's been shot. Okay, no, he's okay. Leo's a killer. No, he's not. Um, uh, and, and so stuff that was built up just kind of, okay, yeah. Which, again, I, I think on some level, that's probably Lynch going, the mystery is not what we're following here. And so the structures of the mystery don't apply with what we're trying to do here. Even though everything is telling you it's a mystery, it's not really a mystery. So we're not going to do mystery structure. Uh, so it, it, it's, it's fascinating to watch. But then as a viewer, it's kind of like, here's a long moment. And then here's a whole bunch of subplots of rapid succession. I agree. But at the same time. It's very soap opera-esque, though. Like, that is the epitome of soap opera. Oh, sure, sure. Someone is shot, they go into a coma. Someone's in a fire, they go into a coma. Very few people die in a soap opera. Coma, yes. Death, no. No, 1,000% agree. But, again, it, it's it, it's a soap opera. It's not a mystery. And so it, it's it's a soap opera using mystery tropes to disguise the fact that it's a soap opera. And so show like this, it's like, if you're looking at it from a mystery perspective – it's all over the board. Again, from a soap opera perspective, first first ep- first scene aside, the rest of the episode is very much paced like a soap opera because it's quick cut. It goes this subplot, this subplot, and you're right. Like, um, no one's ever dead. They're 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 injured. They're in a coma. They they leave town. They come back. Whatever. The evil twin. Or uh, so slight digression. Have you seen Peyton Place, a movie from like the 1950s? Uh, it sounds familiar. I feel like I may have, but I don't remember much about it. It is like the epitome of soap opera. Mm-hmm. It's like, all right. Um, that may be something that I want to discuss later to do another one off of. Honestly, I wouldn't be adverse to at some point in time doing kind of a quick tour of, of soap operas. Um, uh, because I, I, if we do that, I have a chance to get you to watch a wrestling show that I think you actually like, but we're not there yet. I refuse to talk about wrestling unless Matthew Dorkin Dawkins <laughs> comes on to this show. I, I, mean, I throw down that for gauntlet now. for Matthew. Uh, All right. Uh, do you have any any last, last minute thoughts about this episode? No, because I think we need to get to episode seven. The the most important episode potentially of Twin Peaks other than the pilot. Yes, and I would say if I had to judge the three most important episodes of Twin Peaks. It would be Northwest Passage, Lonely Souls, and Beyond Life and Death. Everything in the middle, some of it's awesome, some of it is so-so, but like these three you have to watch. Right. That'd be an epic movie. Hmm. Right. Digressing again because I, I, I'm building up the, the tension for this one. <laughs> if for some reason you have not watched Twin Peaks or any of the episodes and you're just listening to us do this, please stop. Go watch this episode. <laughs> Remember all the warnings I gave you before we started Twin Peaks because they all apply to this episode we're about to go into. If you have no, know anything about Twin Peaks, once you hear me do this, it will ruin the entire series for you. Hands down. Yeah, for right, context, for context um, Chris told me not to watch to read the uh, notes he made about this before I watched it. So, Disclaimer is all done. Hawk investigates Harold after Donna reveals he has Laura's diary, but discovers he is hanged himself, leaving a suicide note written in French, which means I have a lonely soul. 
Maddie tells Leland and Sarah she's returning home. Bobby discovers a hidden cassette tape in the heel of Leo's boots. <laughs> God damn. Sorry, Leo with those fucking shoes. Uh, Audrey confronts Ben, revealing that she knows who he owns One-Eyed Jacks, and Ben admits that he slept with and loved Laura. The pages from Laura's diary are reconstructed, revealing Laura was molested and abused by Bob, and that she planned to tell the world about Ben Horn. After Audrey reveals her information about Ben to Cooper, the police arrest him. The log lady tells Cooper there are owls at the local bar called the Roadhouse. Going to the Roadhouse, Cooper, Truman, and the log lady sit at a table together, enjoying the wonderful music of Julie Cruz. You see Bobby at the bar sitting beside the waiter drinking. And Cooper has a vision of the giant telling him, it's happening again. At the Palmer house, Leland smiles at himself in the mirror, and his reflection is revealed to be that of Bob. Possessed by Bob, he drugs Sarah in one of the creepiest scenes in the world of her coming down the stairs, Yeah, and murders Maddie, placing a letter under her fingernail. At the roadhouse, Donna, Bobby, James, and Cooper all sense something has happened and are visibly disturbed. Cooper is comforted, conf- comforted by the waiter who tells him, I'm so sorry. Now, we talked before about how episode one was kind of Lynch going, okay, I'm not going to give you what you want. Um, This episode feels like, all right, I'm going to give you exactly what you want and really reinforce it doesn't matter. Uh, This episode was written by Frost and directed by Lynch. I'll say it felt like it was written by Frost because um, it had more connectivity to season one, right? Like this felt like the actual ending of season one in a lot of respects uh, uh, down to the, like we said before about how everyone just suddenly knew something happened. Uh, the first time it felt like maybe that was just a coincidence or whatever, but now it's like, okay, no, there's genuinely something explicitly supernatural happening here. Uh, we got answers. Um, you know, there is a spirit that is possessing people and murdering people. Uh, supernatural stuff that was just kind of weirdly surreal is now explicitly there's supernatural stuff going on. Uh, uh, um, you know, Laura was murdered by her father, being possessed by this guy. Uh, and yet, none of that really matters because the, 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 the thing that's actually doing this is still around and still killing and kills again. So it's the, just as you get the conclusion of the first murder, a second murder has now happened. Uh-huh. Uh, and that's really, really great. Um, even if the French is dodgy, uh, because it actually translates so, to "I'm a lonely man, not I have a lonely soul." But I get it. I get it. I get it. So I was I was doing my day job work, and <laughs> I see I get like a ping in our in our host only channel on the Discord, and it's from Eddie. So I figured maybe he's he's watched something and he wants to like suggest another show. Because he does that all the time, and I try to tell him that we're we're very tight schedule here. <laughs> and instead, I get a rant about how the fridge is bad in the show. It's so bad, so wrong, and like broke and break down of what it really means <laughs> and everything else. I was almost motivated enough to do research, almost. <laughs> I, I, my my plan did not work. Uh, so while 
This episode, while we gave a summary, is probably one of the hardest ones to really dissect because so much happens, but at the same time, as you originally mentioned, none of it's important, but it is beautifully shot. And the encapsulation of what Lynch's and Frost's vision probably originally was. And the importance is staggering. Yeah, I mean, it's... um like you said before about how uh, shooting with with style, um, this is definitely an episode where it's like, uh, we're going to give you all the answers you want, but we're going to do it in a very stylistic way. Um, and as a result, the, the I'm sure the intent was uh, you kind of bounce off and realizing that, that Laura wasn't really the answer and you really are following along for these other reasons. Um, I, again, I feel like I could see why maybe audience at the time saw this and maybe were frustrated because it was like, that's not really an answer. Uh, but it is. It, it genuinely is. Uh, not even in the, uh, it's a thematic answer versus a literal answer. No, the, no you, you find out who murdered Bora. I mean, it, 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 it's it's very clear. And it's not even a um, uh, a cop out. It, it's, nope, this, this guy was- like- you mean where you pull the the mask off number one and it's a monkey? Well, you pull back that it's a monkey, then you pull off the mask and it's yourself. It's it's a more solid answer than that. Or like um, uh, spend a year trying to figure out who killed JR only to find out that it was all a dream. <laughs> or, all right, I'm going to ruin something for you. The, the biggest thing in the world. Before Actually, before I do it, did you ever watch the Bob Newhart show? Yes, but it's been a while. Did you ever watch Newhart? the cabin where they sort of, where he sort of owns yeah. like this little winter lodge. Yeah. Are you okay if I spoil this? Not good. Fuck. 50 year old spoiler by this. Well, not 50 is in the eighties. Um, Jesus, fuck the eighties. Uh, so at the last episode of new Hark that had all these quirky characters where he'd been running for a while, I think it ran seven seasons. He wakes up in bed with the wife from the first show from the seventies. and says, let me tell you about this dream I had. Boom. So the wow. entire seven seasons of the show that the characters you've grown to love and watch was all a dream. Just not one season. All of it. That's ridiculous and amazing. That is beautiful. And that is the type of thing that people should run people out of the country for, not the end of the prisoner. <laughs> right. And I mean, so it's it's interesting that like kind of just stuck in the middle of the season is like, okay, by the way, here's the answer. Um, if they were still doing eight episode seasons, this actually would have been a really good season two kind of cliffhanger of like, hey, you get the answer, but what's going to happen next? Uh, but instead, it's kind of jammed this 22 episode season. And I could see why if people were, if people were still following at this point in time, then they were still on the train regardless. Uh, but I could see why maybe some people were like, ah, I don't care anymore. Uh, they were consecutively losing huge swaths of viewers every every episode. They got right. a bump for this one because they advertised that this episode you learn who the killer is. If you're like, well, well, I'm curious who the killer is. Sure, and, and, and I, I suspect that's probably exactly why the network said, "Hey, we need to have this answer so we can have that kind of bump, get people back on board." And then I I, I expect what happened was then people drop right back off again because those stunts never work out the way networks think they do. But I agree with you, though. If they had actually ended the season with this, 
And then they could have spent those, what, three to four months between hyping up the comeback of the show, and they would have probably had another bump and had a chance to have recaptured most of their audience. Agreed. Agreed. Until they saw what the next season was. <laughs> well, right. Um, but kind of buried in this is also, uh, again, the, the soap opera of a mystery. Uh, because, like, uh, it, it's the... You know, the diary gets reconstructed. The diary being such a huge pivotal point, which is like it's circumstantial evidence at best. There's no reason why this evidence should be that strong. But, you know, it's a diary because that's what soap operas do. Or like there's a cassette tape. So it's obvious, obviously it's buried in the heel of someone's boot, which is the worst place to put a cassette tape because they're very fragile and would break the second you put pressure on it. But it had a plastic cover. <laughs> right. Exactly. I mean, it's perfect. Um, and Leo was a truck driver, so he sat in the truck all day and likely never walked. Look at all that logic to support why you could have a cassette tape in the heel of your boot. All that logic. All that logic. Um, uh, but I'm mean, also like literally the log lady shows up and says, by the way, the next clue's over here. <laughs> <laughs> and they go over there. And sure enough, there's the next clue. <laughs> so... While I have a lot of good things to say about this episode, I do want to point out that in the first season, Cooper was sharp. He was FBI yeah. agent. He may have had some quirky methods. Second season, does he takes all the sharpness that Cooper had and throws out the window. Everything is constantly almost a failure. Someone else has to come and tell him directly where to go. So he does things. He's lost a lot of agency as a character. Yeah, Truman's sharper than is, he is at this point. Yes. And um, I'm curious if that was a writing room decision or if it was some other cause for it. I, uh, it, my, my gut says, um, this, uh, it, it's a problem you see more in sitcoms. I'm going to use sitcoms as an example, because I think it's the best way to illustrate this. Um, when a character becomes popular and particularly over a period of time, a character stops becoming a character and starts becoming a collection of ticks and characterizations. Um, and you particularly see this in uh, uh, sitcoms, but like um, uh, Three's Company, let's take it as a random example. Uh, you know, initially there was some interesting character dynamics between uh, uh, this man who's uh, trying to find ways to hide sexual identity from to his two female roommates. But then over time, they just become a collection of catchphrases and set pieces. Uh, um, if you look at really just any other sitcom over time, the Simpsons, uh, you know, whatever you see the same thing is that the characters, the audience finds certain things they like about the characters and the characters keep doing those things. That's what the audience expects to see. And they stop being interesting characters as a result. Uh, Cooper is in that same boat. He's like he's quirky. Everyone loves the fact he's quirky. So now his quirkiness is the only character part of him that matters. And you're shaking Let's your head, that. and I completely agree with that. I mean, it's it's it's, it's a disservice. Um, but like podcast again, a non-visual medium. Thank right, you for yeah, the, yeah. Uh, the that, that's why I, I pulled out there. Um, uh, but I mean. What's interesting is that the characters who are more wrapped up in the soap opera structure are actually getting more layers than the ostensible lead of the show. Like Bobby is continuing to develop interesting layers. Uh, Leo um, is now a very different character than he was because he was shot. Um, he's still a piece of shit, but he's a different character now. 
uh, you know, Truman is starting to try to come to terms with the horrible thing that's happened in his town. Uh, Leland obviously is in a very different place because it turns out he's a murderer. Um, and, uh, uh, and, Andy and Kimmy Roberts, I forgot her, the actual name of the show, are getting more plot around them and her pregnancy and their relationship and everything else. Yeah. The fact also Truman's dealing with the fact that the woman that he is in a relationship with may have been one of the killers that burned down the mill and right. then she skipped town. Yeah. I mean, so uh, uh, it's it's weird that the character who came into the show with the most depth has suddenly lost it while all the characters who were soap opera stereotypes have become more nuanced. And I'd love to say it's intentional, but I don't know how much of that is intentional, how much of that is just we have so many goddamn characters in the show that Cooper's material, there's no room for him anymore. And I, I don't think we could move on from this episode or even touch on the last scene unless we do point out that this is one of those blatant racism, racist episodes with a characterization of Yellowface and Catherine. Yeah. And it's something that needs to be pointed out and how horrible that was. I think even then and he uses a plot point for the show and. Yep. Um, uh, and it's, I don't know. Um, I recognize that this is a very influential and important episode uh, and, and certainly a show. Uh, but what's interesting looking at this well, 30 years later, I just did the math in my head. Well, 30 years later uh, is that some of it is clearly meant to be uncomfortable and some of it is uncomfortable in retrospect. Mm-hmm. Uh, and some of it, uh, like, like, um, okay. Uh, this show hinges on sexual assault, right? Let's just, well, a lot of the show hinges on sexual assault. And I could see a trajectory where over time that gets less and less okay to show. But now we're in kind of a post me too environment where it's like, no, women absolutely are treated like shit and have to use their sexuality just to have an ounce of power in the male dominated world. And that leads them into really bad situations where they can get murdered by men who just feel like they own them. And it's like, okay, that aged surprisingly well all of a sudden. Uh, So um, yeah, there are moments where like because bits of it have aged well and because bits of it are clearly intended to be uncomfortable that sometimes when you find the, the accidental, almost accidental, um, uh, uh, the parts where things were not okay then, but even more less okay now, it kind of really slaps you in the face because it's it's not that's rare so much as it's jarring from the other parts that seem to be more intentionally crafted. And that abruptness and things that are just wrong on every level, not only the sexual assault, but also coupled with the fact that it is incest. Right. And so it's we, we gave... We discussed it before we started, but this episode brings all of that back to bear and it is worth pointing out and taking a moment to consider the entire thing and how it weighs now and something that people should should have to grapple with. Like one of the things that it does is it forces you to grapple with these painful things and 
some of those, as you said, are intentional and some of them are privileged people not completely understanding everything and presenting something on screen. Right. But one of the things I think works well in retrospect is that also a lot of the characters are privileged. Like um, ultimately one of the things this show is tapping into that has not aged at all is the fact that if a pretty white girl gets murdered, it's a media sensation. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the more you dig into who Laura Palmer is, the more you realize that uh, uh, – I'm not victim lemming, but certainly she was not the pristine character that everyone believed her to be. Uh, and while what happened to her is obviously still horrible, uh, it doesn't change the fact that the only reason this got attention was because she was a pretty white girl. Uh, and so it's interesting because I feel like that is – absolutely something that Lynch and Frost are tapping into intentionally uh, because there's again, soap opera trope, like the everyone wants to be a part of everyone else's business until that attention is drawn to them. And then they want to push people away. And that kind of tension at push and pull is where soap operas get a lot of their dynamism. And that's happening here. It's like going, well, oh yeah, the FBI is coming in and, and they'll solve this problem. That'd be great. And then it's like, oh, but don't look over here in this part of the investigation because that's inconvenient for me, which is where that privilege is starting to show up from the characters' perspectives. And um, uh, so we have some of these characters who aren't as privileged, who are just like, you know, again, like uh, um, the mill owner. Uh, she, she doesn't have the same kind of privilege. And so she's, she's, just treated like crap, frankly, on the, on the show. And that has not aged well in terms of how it's presented, but there's a certain amount of, of underlying components of like, okay, but that's kind of how white people treat marginalized people. So, And to, to go back on, if people are don't think that it's true, if you want to go back and just do a random Google search about black people that have been killed or even black girls that were killed and the amount of media coverage they get compared mm-hmm. to uh, white women, it is staggering. Their yep. stories are quickly covered up if at all brought up. And the same thing goes for, God, what was that? I want to say three or four years ago, there was a story about a black girl who got kidnapped and managed to free herself and got hardly any coverage compared to a white girl who was lost. They thought were kidnapped. That was all over the media for weeks. Yep. Absolutely. And some of the episodes that we skipped also shows how worse will treat Josie because Josie will become a servant to Catherine in outfits of servants. And it, it is bad. Ouch. Like beyond bad, which is also the reason we skipped it. Good. Good plan. But to bring back to the good parts about the episode, the final scene is one of the most beautiful shot pieces of art I've ever seen, even today. Mm-hmm. Just showing the contrast of characters, seeing Cooper, the log lady in Truman sitting at a table, drinking, l- watching someone on stage. And the music is perfectly pitched. The It is full of the very atmosphere. It seeps through the television into your home as you're watching it. And then to contrast that by the horror of Maddie being killed. And even as Maddie's being killed, you don't know if she's necessarily seeing Leland, if she's seeing Bob. And then she knows a vision that she had is coming true. And it's just not Laura, but herself that's about to die. Right. Uh, that and is 
peak horror. Yeah. And something you pointed out last episode that I, I, I wins episode thinking about and, and really helped me to resonate with it is that um, it's also a great way to kind of really reinforce two pieces. One, Twin Peaks is ultimately a community that does try to stick together. Um, and the fact that everyone's reaction is very similar once Maddie's killed, even though she wasn't from Twin Peaks, she was part of that community. And so they all reacted very similarly uh, and, and in ways that were horrified by they're horrified by them and two the twin peaks is just not quite in the same world as us because everything about the roadhouse tells you this is a certain kind of bar this is a certain kind of aesthetic and there's a certain kind of music that's played there and it is not the music you're hearing <laughs> <laughs> but it, it is uh, oh it's beautiful. a little it, behind it, it, it's beautiful and it's 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 a great job of being uh disconcerting that slowly again that slow build piece the beginning and the end are both kind of slow builds and this one is the it builds from disconcerting to and, and awkward because frankly the, the, the them sitting there watching her saying like just the three of them sitting at the table is an awkward moment and it slowly morphs into being uncomfortable and then disturbing and it's just it's really well done uh behind the scene tidbit that i mentioned originally how this is an episode they kept under wraps so much so that they had uh, Sherilyn Finn, who was playing Maddie and also played Laura. She was the actress was finger quotes again killed four times that day for recording because they didn't want people to know who the killer was. Okay, so once by Bob, mm. once by Leland, once by Jacoby, mm. and once by Ben Horn. So no one would know who the actual killer was until it aired. Interesting. That's very cool. Do you have any final thoughts about this before we move on? Uh, nope. I think we should go wrap it up. Season two, episode 22, Beyond Life and Death. Earl takes Annie to a wooded grove where they vanish behind the curtains of the Red Room. Having suffered head trauma during the pandemonium, pandemonium at the contest, Nadine reverts to her true age, upsetting Mike, who has come to genuinely love her. Ben unburdens himself to the Hayward family. Doc Hayward violently attacks him. Andrew and Pete discover that the metallic cube contained a safety deposit key. Audrey chains herself to the bank vault in protest of Ghostwood, while Andrew and Pete arrive at the bank to unlock the safety deposit box, which detonates a bomb planted by Eckhart. Cooper follows Earl and Annie into the Red Room alone. In a distorted voice, Sarah tells Major Briggs, I'm in the Black Lodge <laughs> with Dale Cooper. I'm waiting for you. Cooper sits in the red room with the little man and Laura, who tells him, I'll see you again in 25 years. Cooper sees disturbing apparitions of the waiter, the giant, Annie, Caroline, Laura, Bob, and finally Earl, who demands Cooper's soul in exchange for Annie's life, which Cooper offers to give him. Earl is dispatched by Bob, and Cooper is chased and caught by his doppelganger. Several hours later, Cooper and Annie emerge from the go grove, and they're taken to the hospital. Annie's taken to the hospital, and Cooper is taken back to the Great Northern, where he awakes to see Truman and the doctor in his room. He says he needs to brush his teeth, and he goes into the bathroom. His reflection is that of Bob, and he mockingly repeats, How's Annie? How's Annie? How's Annie? What a cliffhanger. And you end the show on that. 
Mic drop. Boom. I mean, that feels like uh, we talked about before uh, of of tactical cliffhangers. Of the you've got you've got to renew us. There's no way you can end the show on this. And <laughs> network's like, nope. Be sure as I can. <laughs> and they did. Um. And I talked about this before, but like, obviously, there's a whole bunch of new characters introduced here. There's a whole bunch of subplots that are happening here. Um, like, uh, uh, you know, Mike is a relative. Mike relationship with with uh, Nadine and, um, you know, uh, Earl and whoever the heck that is, and the the stuff going on with the Ghost Woods and then all that. There's definitely a lot of stuff that that's clearly happened in the past fifteen episodes. But what's interesting is that how much this episode is basically just undoing that entire 15 episode arc, right? Like um, in episode seven is when uh, Nadine thought she was a teenager again. And this episode, she loses that again. And it's like, clearly that subplot is is done. Like, wherever, wherever that follow up. And um, don't forget Nadine gained superhuman strength. Right. Right. Because that's what, that's what concussions do for you. That's clearly that's what science teaches us. And, it was nice to see Mike again, though, because Mike was in the pilot episode. He was Bobby's sidekick that decides to stop doing drugs after their weird encounter with Leo in the woods and the shotgun. Right. And so a use for a character they already had. But Wyndham Earl. Oh, we got to talk about Wyndham Earl. Do we? So I think this is what Frost came back and was part of the people that made Wyndham Earl. Mm-hmm. And Wyndham Earl is equivalently Cooper's Moriarty. Really? That's a little Sherlock for people. Yeah. He was his antagonist. There was a whole chess game they were playing via like newspaper clippings. There was a a whole thing that was ir- irrelevant. And so that is he is the pinnacle of evil because Cooper, Wyndham Earl and Cooper were partners for a while. I want to say Wyndham Earl was Cooper's almost like instructor. They were in a case together. Cooper slept with Wyndham Earl's wife, who's Caroline. Wyndham Earl kills his wife, then hates Cooper and goes all after Cooper for a long time. But then there is the, oh, was it like the Blue Book Project or whatever that's dealing with aliens? Aliens. Oh, Blue and Book, yeah. And so Wyndham Earl is obsessed with that. And that comes back, it becomes a Black Lodge, which is where Major Briggs comes into play because Major Briggs knows about the aliens. Oh, uh, okay. So there's a lot of drama-ish stuff that goes on that is very soap opera that is written by a whole bunch of other people. And Lynch came back. I think Lynch regained interest around episode, what was that, 18, and started trying to promote the Save the Show again, but came back around episode 21. So 21 and 22, the last two are influenced by Lynch. And you can tell this episode is pretty much heavily influenced by Lynch. He's an uncredited writer on it, but he directed it. And that t- that that is amusing to me because now you've told me that. Um, the scene between Earl and Bob makes much more sense because it very much now to me reads like, your villain's crap. I'm going to murder him with my villain and put him back yes. center stage. <laughs> yes. Like, this is what a real villain is. This was more of a lieutenant at best. But there was this immaculate chess game they're playing for a long time that you find out that the clues they gave you were, weren't relevant and they skipped over stuff. So there's no way that you could have deduced what was going on. Right. Wyndham Earl captures Leo. And the reason that Leo is sitting somewhere with his teeth holding a spider above his head is because... He, he's in a Wyndham Earl trap. It is a whole clusterfuck. 
But and then, again, this is what's really interesting uh, is because we we've reiterated this is like uh, Lynch clearly gets soap operas, but enough to be able to make fun of them. And it seems like what may have happened is during a 15 episode arc is that the, the writing team kind of got sucked into just, just writing soap opera, which is not where Twin Peaks works best. Twin Peaks works best when it is pushing against that structure while still following it. And for me, the best scene to show that it's turning a corner and sadly too late is the bank because uh, Audrey comes in, changes herself to the door, and immediately the show goes, okay, that subplot's dumb. We're going to bring in a different subplot in the middle of that subplot. <laughs> and so Audrey kind of just awkwardly chains to this door while another subplot's happening around her. And so the show itself is saying, your subplot is no longer interesting and important to us. And that's that is fun. Coupled on top of the fact she chains herself to the door, but she chained herself so that she could let people in and yes. out of the vault door. Like that is the cherry on top of what you're saying. It's like and, and they, they go into the vault and the camera's frame so you can still see her chained to the door, staring at these actors, doing another subplot in the middle of her subplot. That they just completely ball over her storyline. <laughs> and it's like that's that, that's what Twin Peaks does well, where it's like, yes, sometimes um, sub- subplot, two different subplots intersect and meet, but you never have one subplot just trump another one and then rub its face into the fact it is not an interesting, important <laughs> subplot right now. That's so good. Um, so another character that we should probably discuss quickly before we move on too much is Annie. Annie is Norma's sister. Okay. Who attempted to commit suicide if I remember right but it was a failed attempt then she joined god what are they is it called a nunnery she became a nun for a while but then she yeah. left that and come to twin peaks to work in the diner and she starts a relationship with cooper this is a relationship they brought in because cooper cannot have a relationship with audrey because they brought right. in a new love interest for cooper okay and that's why we get this entire character created Okay. Is there anyone else that we're missing? No, um, that, that gives me some Andrew context. is dealing. Andrew is dealing with the subplot with Catherine and Josie and like who controls the mill. And there's this whole crime boss thing going on. Right. Not super important. And Pete's just Pete. I love it. I love Pete. Pete is like my favorite character in Twin Peaks. Pete has, for me, evolved into he's just the audience at this point it's like he just comes into scenes and comments on them and leaves and that's pretty much it and, and usually his commentary comes down to well that's weird <laughs> and it's like that's fair sometimes you need characters who kind of just look at this look at the situation and goes i'm gonna tell you what the audience is saying huh and then move on <laughs> so jack nance the actor who plays pete has been in pretty much everything lynch has done up to now jack nance will not be in season three because oh. he got into like a bar fight with someone who was hurt and went home and unfortunately passed away. Oh no. But, and in the, in the media that they put out later, I think Frost heard a book. It stated that Pete dived in front of Audrey to protect her from the blast. So the character gets to die a heroic death. The actor himself unfortunately passed away. Well, that's good. I mean, it's cool. They gave him a, a cool out. Uh, uh, so I mean I that, that ending. Uh, I mean, random other people that we need to discuss. Oh, oh yeah. No, all right. Before we get to the real, real subplot, um, Ben 
is Donna's father. Okay. And so her and Audrey are half sisters, and that's why you get Donna being very upset. Doc Hayward kicks the snot out of Ben. So very, very soap opera shenanigans right there. Right. Uh, and, and honestly, that's in a weird way. Uh, I think where this shows almost uh, this episode is actually a, a fault for this episode is that uh, the whole show is kind of hinged on the fact that you're not here for the murder mystery. You're here for the, the soap opera. And what this episode kind of does is I, I think it pushes its gentle ripping of soap opera a little too far um, because a lot of this episode is like, yeah, all the soap opera stuff you're watching, we're just going to get rid of all that. And we're going to go right back to focusing on the murdering. And that's going to be center stage because compared to last episode, we had six subplots or six cliffhangers. because so all the subplots, this one, the opposite, we have one cliffhanger. Granted, it's a huge one. But everything else is more or less wrapped up. Uh, and One more thing. Go ahead. Sorry, didn't you finish? No, I was going to say, it's like, that, that, and so now we've moved, we, we've actually finally jumped a track from soap opera to, to murder show structure. Um, and I think, so, so in a way, I'm almost kind of glad it gets canceled at this point in time because a season three would have been a very different show. So before we go on to the real reason that we're all still here. Mm-hmm. I would be remiss if I did not mention the fate of Josie and we would probably be called out by our listeners. If we don't say what happened to Josie, would okay, you like please. to guess what happened to Josie? Uh, she's dead. Technically. Yes. And no. Okay. That's a good answer. So in one of the episodes before this, Josie, wait for it, gets turned into a doorknob. What the actual fuck? You could go and watch it yourself. But I've given you the final hook for it. That is the fate of Josie. What? The- All right. All right. And it was done, I think, by the other writers. One of the things I heard is like Lynch was making a joke in the writer's room about we could turn Josie into a doorknob or something. And bloop, it's in there. And so <laughs> moving past. Yeah, the, the, show needed to, the show needed to end. Yeah. <laughs> You you get them, the log lady, I think, showing up with the oil. And Cooper has Renette sniff the oil. And Renette says, that's, the, that's what I smelled when Laura was killed. Right. So reinforcing how important it was and how they're going to use it. I also want to point out that Renette needs to go take some classes about self-actualization importance. Because I, given Laura was killed, Renette was brutalized and nearly killed. And she doesn't say that's the night where I was assaulted. That's the night Laura was killed. Right. Yeah. It's like that's uh, you, you can send yourself a little more on that. Um, so, but also, uh, uh, I've been joking about this even in my head. But when I saw this episode, I was like, no, literally, the log lady is just the plot bus. She, every mm-hmm. time she's on screen, she's just telling people, here's where the plot's going next. <laughs> and I kind of. At first, it, it bugged me a little bit. So I'm like, oh, there's more of this character. And it's like, no, there's not. And then the show kind of recognizes that. It's like, no, seriously, we're only going to use her as a plot device. Um, and <laughs> okay, I, I'm, I'm kind of back on board with the audacity. Like, nope, this character has one goal, which is just to give random clues and then move the hell on. Okay. All right. If we're here, we're here. And so then you get where we actually go. You have Earl dragging Annie into the red room behind him saying that her fear is what he needed to get through. 
And so they instantly go behind the red curtains. And then you have Cooper pouring this oil into a stump equivalently and he and Truman waiting and Cooper telling Truman he has to go alone. This also touches on, I don't remember if we saw the episode or not, but Hawk in first season mentions that you have to go through the red room and only can only come out with, if you have like true courage, but everyone has a doppelganger like that was dropped ages ages ago. All right. So Cooper, knowing that, goes in alone. And uh, it is, I want to say, 15 minutes of some of the best, creepiest television that has ever been made. So I'm surprised some of this got by, by the censors. Uh, two things I, I want to talk about right front. One is the special effect of the, the red curtains appearing in the middle of the forest is fantastic for 1991. Um, like that would all be CGI now. And that was done with physical effects. And I don't know how they did it, but it is seamless and amazing. And they pull a trick off two or three times this episode. And it's like, it's, I was waiting for a jump cut or something. And I didn't see anything. And so I was like, that really on a technical level, very much impressed me. Uh, but also I have not seen that much running around the same set of corridors since the last time I watched classic doctor who. I was going to say since last time I watched Scooby Doo, but you're also spot on because it's like it's so obvious. It's like okay, there is <laughs> there's one curtained area and there's one curtained room, and we're going to film that from every possible goddamn angle. Um, and to their credit, there's so much interesting stuff going on that you kind of forgive it for that, but it's really, really, really clear. It's the exact same set. <laughs> um. So we we even start that this is the vision that Cooper had or was given as he's not from Twin Peaks. And you get a chance to see Laura again. You see the little man and the little man is telling Cooper exactly what is going on. And it's up to you whether or not you can believe if you want to believe him. But the fact when he ends one of his things is like the next time you see me, it won't be me. And then we no longer see equivalently. I use finger quotes again, good versions of these characters. Right. Um, and there's a little touch uh, I noticed is that um, the, the doppelgangers all have, um, in, in the Black Lodge anyway, um, all have uh, white contacts in their eyes. Uh, so it's a nice little touch to help the audience visually understand kind of who is who in this scenario. Uh, which is great, but then obviously when in the real world, you don't have that indicator, and so it it becomes muddy again, which is nice. Uh, but for this moment, that was a nice little touch to kind of, okay, this is evil Cooper, this is good Cooper. And again, so much shooting from the back to kind of hide the fact that there's only one actor here, as it were, I mean, and a stunt double. Um, but it was really done really, again for 90, 91, 92. It was done really, really well. Uh, um, there was, there was not a lot of uh, obvious jumps or the thing. I mean, like it, I was drawn into it. So, I mean, it was We go back to constraints lead to good creativity. And I, I feel like Lynch maybe intentionally constrained himself on this scene to, to see what he could yeah. do. Um, because there was no reason to, at this point in time, they had, Maybe they're losing money. Maybe maybe they lost money out of this point. Maybe the, the network lost confidence. They were back to having no cash again. Maybe that's what happened here. Uh, but again, there's an energy and a, a dynamism here that we hadn't seen in 
even episode seven, we talked a lot about how great it was, but still it, 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 it didn't have the same dynamism as this last 15 minutes. So I've seen this so many times, I wouldn't know where to go. What, what part strikes you the most for this series of scenes, this vignette, if you would? Um, honestly, the, 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 the conversations with Laura struck me uh, really strongly because um, Cooper chasing himself at one point in time has got funny. Uh, you mentioned Scooby-Doo, and I think that that's dead on. Uh, but again, that goes into that kind of lynching thing of let's take something awkward and disturbing and make it funny. Uh, that, that, that's, that's his trademark in a lot of ways. Um, but the conversations with Laura were the first time in a while where we, we see, oh, this was a person, right? Uh, uh, we see, okay, this is a, a person who's, who's trapped here on some level. And the conversation with her, while still cryptic and weird, obviously, uh, uh, felt like a, like the first time Cooper's actually looked at Laura as a person, not as a puzzle. Mm-hmm. And that the fact that, that came across in such a weird, surreal, disjointed space was really impressive to me. And that came across basically in episode thirty, if we're. Yeah. Going through all the episodes. Right. It took that long for him to view her as a person. Mm-hmm. Like that speaks volumes in of itself about how women were treated and how women were viewed, coupled on top of the fact how she was murdered and everything else. Like that. So even the people that are coming to try to, if not save us, to make sure that we're remembered and justice is done, don't view us as people. Like that yeah. is. Yeah. And it goes back, though, to another point that the pr- protagonist of the entire show, the lead character, has always been Cooper. It's never been Laura. Laura was just a hook to get Cooper here to have yeah. a show about him. Yeah. At one point, I did question, if you remember, I questioned whether Cooper's actually the protagonist of the show. I think this episode cements, yes, he is. Uh, um, with any anthology show like this, there's good times where who's actually taking the lead in the show, it gets muddy. Um, but this episode brings it back. Cooper is, is our protagonist and, and he is the journey that we care about. Uh, so the twist at the end is even more a, a, a knife in the guts because it's the, I, I just got back on board with, yes, this is the person I want to follow. And now he's not the person I thought he was. <laughs> So the the scene of Laura going backwards in the chair to then run back around mm-hmm. is still super creepy. Like I want to write this as a game. This is a game that I want to make. The this red room game and that horror and it's everything that's there and it's just so surreal and it's in every aspect of it. Even the little man when you see him again, who's still dancing and singing, but it is very different now. Digression. Um, last episode I asked a question of if they were recording these things backwards and playing them forwards. Um, I, I, in looking up something unrelated to this, I stumbled across the answer with the answer is yes. Uh, basically what Lynch did back then um, was, is real to real, but in, in the revival, uh, he used just phones, but they would actually tell the actor to play the line straight and they would play it backwards for them and have them try to do that intonation two or three times and then they would record it, them actually saying their own line backwards, and then play that 
then reverse the film so that the line still comes up forward, but everything else is playing backwards. Amazing. And so a lot of those actors were actually walking backwards into their seats as opposed to getting up. And, and there's a lot of backwards physical acting that was happening during a lot of that. And so when I watched this episode, knowing that Cooper is the only person that doesn't happen to ever in these scenes, except for when he's possessed at the very end of this, this collection of scenes, he starts to fall in that trap because that's the, that's the moment where it switches. That's the moment where he becomes possessed is when he starts to act the same way that everybody else does. And it's a small little thing that like, once I noticed it, I was like, that's actually extremely clever and extremely cool way to bury the lead. It, it is a masterpiece. And I, I, I love our show because I get to get to keep calling all these amazing shows that we do masterpieces because they are. And fortunately, this is something that people know about Twin Peaks. And right. so it's not an, a buried gem that we have to go and tell people about. It's just getting the joy of being able to talk about something that everyone else already knows is amazing. Well, and I mean, part of the reason why I got on board with the show, honestly, is that there's so many people nowadays who are like, this thing that you love is actually crap, right? And I would much rather say, no, the thing that everyone agrees is good is actually good, and here's why. Uh, it's nothing else to counteract that narrative. <laughs> because it's okay to like things too, you know? Do you have any other comments about being inside the red room before we go to the, like the last scene? No, I think I there's think, a lot we could talk. We could do an entire episode just about the red room, but right. But I, I think, I think we need to move on We're already pretty long for an episode as it is. All right. So when, ah, uh, when they get Cooper back to the great Northern, even when he's in bed, you can tell that Truman and Hayward know something's off about Cooper. Mm -hmm. just from how he's acting what he's saying and they've only known him for i want to say he's been in twin peaks what two weeks something like that, yeah. uh and they know that something is off about him and they don't ever say it but they look at each other and you can tell and we as the audience know that something is wrong but mm -hmm. that final scene of seeing bob in the mirror bah. yeah and, and again um the the practical effect of that uh so many times that that card is played of someone looks into a mirror and they see Bob. Um, and there's lots of different ways you can do that. It's, it's a well-known trick. Uh, but usually you don't want to do that in the same camera angle as someone looking at the mirror normally, right? Because because it's easy to see the, the, the switch. Uh, Lynch and his team are good enough that you can see Cooper looking into the mirror. We do a quick cut. And he cut back to that same angle. Now you see it's Bob. Um, and it doesn't look jarring. It looks like it, it's better for me than like if we had seen the face morph from one to the other or something like that. Like, like you made mm -hmm. the modern day effects. The, um, just the start of now it's this person, now it's that person makes it even creepier because it the, the way this scene is paced, the way this scene is cut, he looks in the mirror. You cut away. It's again kind of. Oh, I'm so used to these languid lynching scenes. He's gonna, we're gonna watch him brush his teeth or something dumb like this. And you cut back, and it's just Bob. And then suddenly he bangs his head. Like the, the, the pace goes from languid to frenetic on a dime, and it just really helps you, you, you as audience like, oh, you gotta jump back a little bit. It's like what what, the, what just happened there? I blinked. I missed it. What happens? Because we're just, the show has never trained us that this is how things go. 
Um, so uh, it's a combination of, of that, that practical effect and the pacing and editing um, really helps sell that moment in a way that on top of McLaughlin's uh, acting ability, just really are, it's a great cliffhanger. Yeah. And they knew the show was going to be canceled at this point. Lynch okay. and Frost were trying to fight to get it bring back. They were telling people to, I think, write into the networks because at this point in time, you can't email networks. They had to write letters and they would send in. Uh, I thought they sent in some sort of object. I can't remember what it was, though, to show they were all peakers. And the network was done. They're like, nope, we're out. But they had some rough ideas if they got a season three that happened after this. Mm-hmm. One of them was to have skipped a few years, maybe like two to five years. I think Lynch wanted to skip 10 years mm-hmm. and they start up with Cooper living in Twin Peaks as a pharmacist. And it would have been Cooper instead of fighting evil from the outside, trying to then fight the evil that was inside of him. Because if mm-hmm. one of the things we were, I think we skipped is that the one armed man had lived with the evil, but he was sort of keeping himself medicated in a way so that the evil wouldn't take over him, which is why Cooper would have then been a pharmacist. Okay. And Interesting. part of me is glad that show was not made. Yeah. But it would also give him a chance to age up Audrey, Donna and everyone else. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that is, I mean, we talked a fair bit about some of the, the, dicey decisions are made through this but certainly one thing that that made me uncomfortable in a bad way through all this is the continued underage sex tropes Mm -hmm. of of this show um like yes teenagers sexually active i I get that but not with adults and certainly not with their family members (laughs) (laughs) it's uh so yeah i i gave him a chance like you know okay let's just give him a few years to to get everyone into the age of consent and <laughs> examine these things. I could see that that being a good decision. Um, but having, you now having said that and me thinking about flesh roll, that made me remember um, Tracy Lords. And I wondered if some of their decisions about Laura, who is also blonde were influenced by the Tracy Lord scandal. Yeah, maybe. And if um, people don't know what that is, you're going to, you can go Google it yourself, right. but don't do it at work. Don't do it at work. <laughs> Yes. Uh, so, um, I guess final thoughts. Um, do you have any final thoughts, my friend? I said it before, but I think it's worth reiterating. Is like, uh, wow, this is a great episode. Um, I'm, I'm with the network on this. I, I feel like it was a bit past its prime. It probably needed to be canceled earlier or at least heavily restructured. Um, so while this cliffhanger obviously is huge and a really cheap way to like, no, seriously, you have to renew us because people want to know the answer to this. I think it was the right call. It was, it was turning into something else. And that's not necessarily bad. There are some great shows that like D space nine turned to a very different show by season seven, yeah. season one. And that was to its benefit. Um, I, I don't see a path in 1992 where this would have become uh, a, a better third season. I, I I genuinely feel like this is one of those things where it did need a couple decades off before you can come back to it. For for me, I was in agreement, but after our talk today, I do see how it could have worked if, if it could have potentially ran five seasons. It would have been how we talked about earlier if the end of season two 
and it would have to follow a British TV format. So you have like six to eight episodes. Right, right. Uh, but if we'd ended season two with the reveal of the killer, and then there would have been a summer break, the network could have done all their things. And I think that break and ending like that would have inspired Lynch and Frost to have actually been more engaged with the season three. Agreed. Which would have removed a lot of the Wyndham Earl and dubious subplots. Right. But, but the reality is them... that was not how television was made in 92. I know. But that is how I could have seen it going multiple seasons because that would have then let Lynch continue on doing some of his shenanigans and soap opera stuff and let Frost come in and make another mystery that would have underlined it. And we would have always, I think, always, always ended in the red room, regardless of what happened. Oh, no. Completely agree. But that is not the world we live in. I'm glad that she was made. I'm also glad it was canceled yep. when it was. And having said that, what can we expect to do next week if the show's all done, Eddie? So next week, we're going to do uh, Lynch's prequel, uh, Fire Walk With Me. Uh, and there's two things I want to say before I get into it. Um, all the stuff we said about content warnings the past couple episodes, like quadruple that. <laughs> it's 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 going to be a lot. Um, uh, and also, um, if you're in the UK, uh, good luck finding us. Because <laughs> it apparently is not on streaming anywhere. Uh, so... So, yeah, have fun with that. Uh, if people are looking for you online, where could they hope to find you and some of your brilliant work? Uh, you can find me at uh, pugsteady.com. That's P U G S T A D Y. Or you can find me on Twitter at pugsteady. Or you can find me on the Darker Hue Discord, just generally bothering Chris. <laughs> And if you're looking for me, you can find me still on Twitter at Dark underscore Hugh in the Darker Hugh Discord dealing with Eddie. And if you want to get some of my work, you can go to IPR and look at Haunted West or go to my website, Dark Hugh Studios, and get some other cool swag. Otherwise, we'll uh, be seeing you. See you.